0: Hey guys! Welcome back to Handling It. I'm your host Catherine, and as you know, I thought I had my life all figured out and then I realized I actually didn't. But I'm handling it. And one of the best ways I've learned how to do that is to talk with others about how they're handling their own lives. Well, thanks for tuning in this week, friends. It has been a busy few weeks on my end, but thankfully I am getting more into a groove and I am so excited for what's to come this fall. I have some really big announcements in store and some super fun episodes in the works as well. Uh, You'll just have to keep staying tuned for all those updates though, because I'll be able to share them with you soon. But first things first, We have an episode to enjoy, and today's guest has a story that I was so happy to learn about. Today you'll be meeting Paola Caroso, a disability activist, content creator, model, and speaker. Paola was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at the age of five, and as a result, Paola and her family moved from their home in Venezuela to Miami, Florida in order for her to receive more accessible health care and resources to help Paula navigate her diagnosis. Flash forward to today though, Paula has used her past and life experiences as a young woman with cerebral palsy to become a more prominent voice in redefining disability. Through her modeling work, for example, Paula has been able to model with brands to help promote adaptive fashion. And on social media, she's always sharing posts in an effort to help redefine society's perception of disability. When I came across Paola's story, I was honestly so inspired by her vulnerability and her choice to not only be an advocate for herself, but to be an advocate for others with physical disabilities as well. I am so happy to share this conversation with you today, so let's get into it! You know what to do, turn up the volume, get comfortable, and I hope you enjoy! Well,
1: like I said, uh Paula, I'm so thrilled to have you on. I just think you're you're doing such incredible work. I had obviously given a breakdown of everything about you in the episode intro, but um just being a disability activist and the activism that you're doing is so powerful and um I'm I'm thrilled to start just hearing more about your story. Um I know that Uh, your diagnosis happened when you were five years old, you traveled to the States from Mm -hmm. Venezuela and, um, you know, I could rattle off about it, but I'd love to hear from you. And, and just to give, if you want to first start off by just introducing people to yourself, um, and maybe we could start off just by chatting a little bit about your, your story and your diagnosis.
2: I love that. So my name is Paula Caroso. I'm originally a native from Caracas, Venezuela, and that is where I was initially diagnosed with a disability. I went in for a tonsil-like tummy, which is just the removal of your tonsils at the age of five. I was a non-disabled child before that. And then going into that surgery, um, essentially there was a malpractice inside the surgery room that caused me a disability. A lot of doctors claim that it was a stroke, that it was a brain injury. It could have been many things because essentially I walked out of the surgery room fine. There was absolutely nothing wrong with me at the moment that that surgery was over until a couple of weeks later, I think it was about two weeks and a half, I started acting up in a matter of, um, I had lost my appetite. I had lost my desire to play with other kids, you know, to kind of be revolved around other children in parks. I had lost so much energy. I couldn't even get up in the mornings. And then one day my parents noticed that my gait, my walking was dramatically changing. My knees were crashing in and I would kind of lose my balance, lose my stability to just stand up. And then one night, I remember it was a Saturday night, and I lost my voice. And that was when my parents were like, okay, we immediately just have to take you to the hospital because this is not normal. And then I remember arriving to the hospital, and there were a series of so many tests done on me. And there was like no sense to what was actually going on. So then they decided to admit me into the hospital. And then about two days in, they noticed that something was going on in the brain. The brain was severely inflammated. And they were scared that this brain injury, brain damage would persist. So they induced me into a coma to kind of level out the brain injury or the brain inflammation, whatever that was going on to stop it. But essentially, I was induced into the coma and the brain damage persisted. So I woke up once they woke me up from the coma, um, I was
1: quadriplegic completely. Wow. Wow. And then, you know, like I said, you are from Venezuela and I know that um, like for your diagnosis and initial treatment, that was all when you were in Venezuela. And then you again, not like the US healthcare system <laughs> is perfect in any way, shape, or form. Right. But, um, you were able to, uh, you know, you and your family upon your move and arrival, you were able to seek Mm -hmm. um, more immediate care here in the States. How did that, were you in terms of your care and your treatment, um, were you in and out of doctor's offices? I could imagine growing up as a kid, uh, what was all that like, if you wouldn't mind me asking.
2: Yeah. So right after being woken up from this coma and doctors and my parents seeing that I was a quadriplegic, that was already like a week into being admitted into the hospital. And then um, I remember from the little things I remember, because I was five, and I think if there was just so many traumatic experiences, but I don't really remember anything like I constantly have to sit with my parents for them to kind of fill in the gaps that I have in my mind. Um, but essentially I was woken up. I was observed by several doctors. They saw I had lost all of my mobility. And then from there on, it was just so many other tests and treatments being done, trying to figure out things, trying to see. And then at one point the hospital discharges me because they were scared that they were going to be sued by my parents from negligence, from not fully being able to diagnose me or have a proper, um, plan of care. So then once they discharged me, I was just in a car constantly traveling around, traveling around all of Venezuela, trying to figure out a proper diagnosis or like, you know, a plan of care or something um, that could improve my livelihood. And I was quadriplegic, so I couldn't move. And I was completely just spastic on all of my four extremities. Spastic is basically that you lost all sense of connection from your brain to your spine to actually move your muscles so your muscles react by becoming spastic which is essentially what a spasm is but I was always spastic like I was just kind of like I had no dorsiflexion in all of my four um, extremities so going back home my parents had to like relearn to bathe me and like relearn to, to to feed me and like i was in a stroller and then my parents were able to get a wheelchair for me so everything just became so difficult and then my parents had no answers from any doctors from any physicians from anybody on like what would be a proper plan of care what could be a treatment plan so my parents decided to come on over to the usa to miami and we kind of visited some orthopedics, some neurosurgeons, and some neurologists. And then there I was officially diagnosed with cerebral palsy, spastic diplegia. Essentially, cerebral palsy, spastic diplegia is a condition that affects a person's ability to move, maintain balance or posture due to a brain injury. So this was just kind of like a sequence of events that happen when you are when you have a brain injury. And it could be a non traumatic brain injury. It could be a traumatic brain injury. In my case, it was non traumatic because I didn't have any physical rupture in the head or anything that we visibly saw that kind of claimed, okay, you know, it was a traumatic brain injury. So we arrived to the USA and then that was like another story because my parents didn't know the language. So they needed interpreters. They needed all sorts of like, you know, help with the language and, um, from what I remember, it was just hopping around a whole bunch of like medical offices. And then I think it was three weeks in being in the USA was when I officially started being treated for my disability, for my new condition.
1: Wow. And that's, I mean, it's a lot of scary stuff I could imagine too, with like a language barrier. I mean, I, it's hard for me to understand medical terminology on a good day. And I couldn't mm-hmm. imagine adding in a language barrier, A language barrier. it being your child. Yeah. And like, I, I could only imagine just like as a parent trying to navigate through that. Um, and like you said, just having to relearn how to do uh, just daily tasks, whether it be eating, walking, all of that, like such a learning curve, having to go back and redo that. Um, If you wouldn't mind, because I feel like this is going to tie into how your activism started out, I'd love if you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit more about, because obviously a lot has changed from, you know, your early years um, with your diagnosis and then your treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, how would you describe your symptoms? Because everybody, anybody with any sort of condition, but especially with cerebral palsy, different have different symptoms right it affects people Mm -hmm. differently um how has it affected your daily life um just throughout just sort of throughout your life if you wouldn't mind sharing Mm -hmm. so I went from being essentially
2: fully quadriplegic to having I would say 85 percent mobility in my upper extremity and I still have like a 45 to a 50 percent Um, mobility in my lower extremities. Um, I can't run, I can't walk too fast. I walk with a cane and with a minor limp because from surgeries and from having a leg a bit longer than the other and having scoliosis, this is just kind of how my body allows me to walk. Um, And this is after about 10 surgeries, uh, six years fully in rehab and physical therapies, So I would say this is like my last stance on like how I will walk forever. Um, As far as of how my disability affects me, you know, I think cerebral palsy just ranges so much. I have friends who have severe CP and they are like severely in wheelchairs with no mobility. And then you have other gals like me, which we kind of have a lot of mobility. We're not affected cognitively, we're just affected a bit physically. Um, so for me, you know, like I mentioned, my limitations are in my walking. So obviously, anything physically that um, has to do with using my legs, I'm limited. And that's from going up a step to bending down to pick up something that fell. Um, that's from entering a subway, in New York City, and it's packed, and I have no way to like kind of you know hold on to something. It could really range by scenario. I don't necessarily have pain. I do have chronic pain from month to month when I'm getting to the time of the month in my menstrual cycle. And I think every woman kind of has pain at that time. But for me, it's kind of even more because it's like my muscles and my bones, like just rubbing against each other when I don't even compensate weight evenly in my body. So it's like what I feel all month times 10 when I'm about to get my menstrual cycle. Um, But I would say like on a, on a day-to-day life, I have to, like, if I have to be out at an event, I have to start getting ready like three hours before, because just getting into an outfit can take me like 30 minutes when it takes an able person, like 10 minutes. I've done plenty of TikToks about it, like get dressed with me, get ready with me where I'm showing how physically challenging it can be for me to like get into jeans or get into sneakers or get into Address because my body isn't molded the same way that non-disabled bodies are so i do have to take certain adaptations and methods that work for me that aren't mainstream you know so anything from like having to unbuckle all of my sneakers to actually get my foot in is obviously going to take me longer to fully you know tie the shoe when it takes you all like a minute to put in um Mm -hmm. So I would say at this day and age in my life, I've learned to adapt my lifestyle. I've learned to, you know, be okay with having to take three hours out of my schedule, out of my busy schedule to get ready if I have to go out or if I have to make it to the store or if I have to take the subway and then a bus somewhere. Like I've learned to adapt to that and I've learned to not feel guilty about adapting to that. Because a lot of it is like, we're on this hustle culture. We're on this like, you know, ready, ready. You have to like struggle to get to where you have to be. And in my case, it's been like always taking kind of like the slower path, but trying to get to the same goal at the same time that everybody is getting to it. Like, for example, I remember um, growing up, you know, being in high school and just seeing all the sports that kids were able to do. All the sports that teenagers and like dance lessons and classes and i was never able to like do any of that so i kind of just had to be okay with what i could do which was like an art class or like i don't know a law class you know every, everything kind of stayed on like the um the- theoric um type of lessons and classes but like i had to learn to be like okay this is my life this is what i have to deal with from a very young age Um, I went to college. I majored in PR and business. And then after graduating, I went to work for some fashion editorials and some fashion PR houses. Um, Completely fell out of love with my job. As soon as I started, I really aspired to be a, you know, a publicist with amazing clientele and, you know, an amazing goal list of what they wanted to achieve. And I just, I felt so weird. Because I was striving to get my clients' goals when I felt that I wasn't even feeling fulfilling in my own shoes of mm-hmm. my real life. You know, I was kind of sitting yeah. there in my office having these conversations about diversity and equity. And this was when diversity wasn't even hot. This was mm-hmm. like 2016, 17 when I kind of started working at fashion houses. two 2000- thousand. 18 and that was kind of when the conversation when we were dipping our feet into what diversity inclusion and equity what you know is it's nothing to what it is today right and just seeing you know the people in the room and the intentions that they had none of the intentions were ever to fully represent and i think that is why we still have the issues that we have today in, in, in the american capitalistic society So I was inundated with the fact that I was in this job and my job as a publicist is to shape, you know, the media's perception of a client. my job as a publicist is is to shape, you know, my client to be this higher version of whatever they want to be. And I wasn't even doing that for myself. And I got Mm -hmm. so upset one day I put in my two weeks. I called my mom. I was like, mom, I just did this. I don't know if it's like the right thing. And she was like, Oh my God, you're insane. And I'm like, I guess I am, you know, I'll figure it out. And then um, I did all of that right at 2019, end of 2019 going into COVID and then, you know, it's 2023 now. And, you know, I think we're, I think we're headed to the right track.
1: Yeah. Well, you're definitely doing something right. Because like you've said kind of before talking about, the content you're putting out on social media. I mean, Paola, like when I came across your page and I started looking at everything you're doing, I mean, the the content you're showing and how candid you are and vulnerable and real and authentic, Mm. it's so amazing. And it's like, it's frustrating. I'm frustrated as Mm -hmm. like somebody who uses social media, the fact that I know there's other content creators, right. With disabilities out there, probably, mm-hmm. you know, sharing their stories, but why is it not mainstream? Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. the really, um, I guess that's still the big question. Like you said, a lot of industries, fashion industries, makeups get like a lot yeah. of industries are trying to become more inclusive. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think there's still such a long way to go specifically yeah. with representing um, individuals with, you know, physical and cognitive disabilities. And, um, I guess, with that said, you've you've spoken in the past about being in denial about your disability. Mm-hmm. How did your denial sort of fuel your activism and where you're at today? I think it was because for
2: such a long time, um, my parents denied my disability themselves. So, of course, and I think we all know this, and especially our generation of millennials, we were kind of, you know, a, a big theme about millennials was healing your inner child and healing that trauma and, you know, trying to rid ourselves from our ancestors' karma. And realistically, you are what you experience. And I think we can all agree that, you know, experience is perspective and life is perspective. So, like, if I have been someone that from the age of five, I've been hearing conversations revolving around the fact that you're not disabled, you know, you're normally just kind of have like this little situation in your leg where you can't do things like others, where you can't, you know, run or walk like others. I am going to grow up and I'm going to already neglect that part of me it because it's natural. Mm-hmm. It's just what is. I mean, if you're you you know, if you're in this household where not even your parents accept that there is this version of you, you're going to neglect it. And I remember going to high school and kids would ask me, middle school to high school elementary, kids would ask me, wait, what happened to you? Why do you walk the way you do? And my parents still hadn't fully addressed the situation. So I would go to school and I didn't know what to tell kids. And of course, back then, and I feel that this has lessened a lot now, Um, people are so inquisitive and people feel that they have a right to ask when something looks abnormal. And we've seen this with with issues like weight, skin, color, race, nationality, gender. We see it every day. So I think a big part of it was when I was 22, 23, I was in my publicist role. I knew I wanted to get out. I knew I wanted to do something for myself, but I didn't want to go out and be the fashion blogger, the lifestyle blogger. You know, I had already dealt with many of those during my PR years. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm not one of you guys. And that's totally fine because I really do feel that there's a market for everybody, especially in a capitalistic society where the mm-hmm. government and, you know, so many markets are going to try to profit off any issue that they, that, that it can become a trend. Right. So a big part of me was like, I can't go out there and speak about disability without fully accepting it. That's very hypocritical, at least in my perspective. Because mm-hmm. I can't show up for a community that fully accepts themselves and I show up halfway in. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. So I think a big part of what really shook everything out was I was at home one day and my dad, um, we were having a conversation and he's like, you only limp because you want to limp. Because I, I, I don't know if you've seen in my videos that I walk with a little limp. And I was like, no, I walk with a limp because I have a condition. I have a disability that has affected me certain ways that makes me walk with a limp. And if you have not come to the terms to accept it, that's a personal issue that you need to solve. Mm-hmm. But I am choosing to move on and move past with the fact that I have a disability. I have a condition for the sake of my inner peace and my mental health. Mm-hmm. Because I couldn't withstand the whole thing of like, oh, you're kind of just like weird, but not weird. But like, not sick, but sick. I was like, this makes no sense. Like, I don't, I don't understand this. Um, Well, and I'm sure even
1: just going to, oh, sorry. I was just going to say with just going to doctor's appointments, like your whole life it's, you know, you go to the doctors to find a solution. And I feel like when you have a condition that's with you for life, like, did you ever feel like a sort of similar kind of wave in that respect where it's like, you know, like, I don't know if like trying to like get a solution is, is the right terminology, but did you ever Mm -hmm. feel like similar to what you were saying with um, you know, just tr- struggling to make people like more accepting or more understanding of what you were going through. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, being in that kind of environment. Yeah.
2: Totally. Constantly. When I would go to the doctors, I feel that I was trying to be fixed. Like, let's do this surgery for this. And let's do this surgery for that. And we're going to do this surgery for this. And, you know, a, for a big part of that, you're a kid, your parents are taking you to the doctor. You're thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to the doctor to get better especially when you don't understand that you have a disability, especially when you didn't know that disabilities don't have a cure. Mm -hmm. So you're out here making this mental cinematic, beautiful picture of yourself, thinking that one day you're going to run again, thinking that one day you're going to, and it's false. And I can't blame my parents because my parents did the best that they could. And Mm -hmm. I think every parent And I know that there are many situations here do the best that they can from what they know and from what they had when -hmm. they were younger. But I think also this perception of disability in the media has harmed us tremendously. You know, Mm -hmm. back in the day you saw in movies and people with disabilities, disabled people are heroic. They are these figures out of nowhere. They fly out of the wheelchairs. You know, they fly out in caves even if they still can't touch the ground there has always been this concept that we have to defeat our disabilities. Mm -hmm. And then we are here on this other side of the screen trying to figure out how to do that when there's absolutely no scientific proof that that can be done.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: So for me, it was a lot of like, this is too false. This narrative is not real. Mm-hmm. What can I do to shape and you know give people a real tangible narrative that is actually beneficial? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of when everything started—the whole content creation journey.
1: Yeah, it, and and I think that realization—I mean—has just changed sort of the trajectory of your life, but also just for other people to kind of see that you know have that visibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because like, as you pointed out, the representation is so not accurate. It's It's so sad, so sad. And in the past, like, so not accurate. And even now, I mean, it's it's getting a little bit better, but there is so much so much that still needs to be done. And I'm not even talking like it representation in films, television, all that. Like, I mean, just in the media. I said Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, um, during the, during the COVID pandemic, um, you know, we heard a lot about uh, schools and nursing homes and the impact of COVID on that. But I have, I said, I have a cousin who's mentally and physically disabled. He relied on like on a day program, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like where were stories on that stories on, you know, and, and like you could go on and on. There's so many different things that are just missing from mm-hmm. mainstream media. Um, but I think what you're doing now, and I want to talk about, so the cane, <laughs> I want to talk <laughs> about the cane because I think what you're doing with that is so it's become a symbol, right? I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of people can look at a cane and associate that with a disability or a disadvantage or whatever. Mm-hmm. It means. To you, what has your cane become a symbol of?
2: Well, I hated my cane. I remember when I, um, so I went from elementary school, I was in a wheelchair for like the first four years, then I got a walker from like fifth grade to eighth grade. And then in high school, I wanted to get rid of the walker, right? Like, you know, hot, you know, the only hot disabled girl in school, like she has to get rid of this ugly walker. But then I go into college and I'm like, I can't do this. Like, I can't walk miles to get to class on time and then have to leave to walk another two miles to get to the other campus, to get to the other location on time. Like, this is not going to work out. I was frustrated. I was like, of course, I'm not going to be in college with a walker. Like, what is that? That is not fashionable whatsoever. So my dad's like, why don't you get a cane? And I'm like, I am not going to. I was like, what is wrong with you? I was like, please go get your mother a cane. I am not going to get a cane myself. And then I remember he walks in one day with well, a cane from Walgreens. Very, very simple. Nothing like nothing like the canes that I have now. And I looked at him and I got so mad. And he was like, just try it. Just try it. See how you feel with it. And i like, that's it. Just try it. Try it on at home. Try it on the block. You don't have to take it to college and i tried it i fell miserably like a whole bunch of times i had so many bruises i did not know i needed to learn how to walk with a cane i just thought like a cane was a cane Mm -hmm. um and then little by little i started using it i started feeling a lot more comfortable a lot more safe with it because i was at the point where i was walking too much in between classes and it just became physically painful to be around school so it was, now I'm disabled and now I have chronic pain and then I still have to manage to get to places on time, deal with people, you know, have a smile on my face. Um, disability really has a domino effect that people don't talk about like in society and that's one of them. And then when I started the whole content creation journey, I didn't have like cute canes. And I was like, this is boring because I've already shot with this like gray cane from Walgreens like too many times. And I remember a friend at the time, he he was with me throughout, like, the whole process of um the starting of this content creation journey, and he gifted me a cane. And this cane was beautiful. It was, like, this wooden carved cane situation, and it was cherry blossom wood. And I was, like, where did you find this? Like, these things exist? Like, I had no idea that fashionable canes existed. And he was, like, yeah, yeah, here's a website. Enjoy it. Take a couple of pictures with that and then just like keep on doing what you're doing because what you're doing is great. And then I shot a couple of pictures with that cane and then out of nowhere's cane company just started sending me canes. And they just started sending me a whole bunch of canes from like neon ones to pink ones to ones that like glow in the dark, like the craziest things. And it definitely, you know, mobility aids, whether wheelchairs, crutches, um, walking sticks for people who are blind canes they're not fun Mm -hmm. there's no fashion accent to it until you know advocates and activists started kind of coming out and requesting for companies and brands to make these mobility aids fashionable you know and I think now like my cane like my mobility aid as many other people in the community can say it's a part of me Mm -hmm. Because without it, like I like internally in my apartment in New York City or in my house in Miami where I am now, I can walk without my cane perfectly because I know the environment. But if you put me somewhere with a crooked ramp that it's like a bootlegged kind of ramp without really a ramp, but trying to be a ramp and then a whole bunch of stairs to access the metro and then, you know, an entrance to a building with five steps up. I can't do that without a cane. Mm -hmm. I cannot do any of that without a cane. So for me, my cane definitely became the staple that it was a part of me. And, you know, we continue to see that with many other advocates in the community that they go on flights and these airline companies toss the wheelchair so hard that then when they land, the wheelchairs are broken and you're breaking a part of that person. Mm -hmm. You're breaking a leg, you're breaking an arm of that person because without that, we can't get anywhere. We can't move. Yeah. And a normal wheelchair won't work. You know, if they, if they need their electric wheelchair, they kind of, you know, they have things molded to what they need. Mm
1: -hmm. I think in terms of, you know, just hearing you talk about the cane for you and just um, sort of the representation of it all. I mean, my goodness, I don't know if you're familiar with Selma Blair, but Mm -hmm. uh, like, I love her. I love Selma Blair and what she her. has done.
2: Yeah, yeah. In terms told of like,
1: us. yeah, and just mm-hmm. I, the way she's taken her um, diagnosis yeah. with MS and shown mm-hmm. the beauty in it and the strength yes. within it, and the way she's utilized her cane in the media. And just, uh, I think, yeah, she did like, I don't know if it was two seasons ago two seasons ago to dancing with the stars dancing like, with the stars yeah, 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 she yeah. she's somebody who's really just you know living showed how living with a disability and showed how silly like any vanity that anybody yeah. has is um yeah. because at the end of the end of the day like no matter what situation you're in you can you know find the beauty and the power within it and i mean palette like you're i i was looking at your page your Tommy Hilfiger campaign I mean, the, Dang, the work girl. you do as a model, I it's incredible because you show just, yes, you know, you have CP and that is a part of you, but you show that despite that, mm-hmm. how you, you have power, you have strength and beauty and like all of it, you show yeah. so many wonderful things of, you know, th- yes, this is a part of you, but you know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. how it's shaped you into who you are. Um, yeah. And I think that's just so wonderful. Um, And in terms of what you're doing online and the content you're creating and just showing, giving people a window to your world and showing what it's like, but also not just showing what it's like for you, but hopefully educating people on what these situations are like for individuals with CP and just... It, just showing people something different, right? I think that's what it's all about. Um, just generating a conversation, showing as a disability activist, you're showing the world kind of what a window to your world looks like as somebody with a disability. But I think it's just all about showing, you know, life looks different for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is how it is for me, and this is how it could be for others. And I think there's a ton of power within that. As you've been doing that, what is sort of the feedback the like sort of that I I don't know whether it be support comments like what has that been um just sort of people's feedback
2: um I think it's been positive I can't really say that like there's been I mean of course you know you get I get bashed sometimes and on TikTok there's like people that say that I fake my disability. And I mean, I think, you know, it goes back to just perspective and I don't know what's going on inside their world for them to think that. I'm not necessarily going to point fingers or judge. The only thing I can control is what I put out there and what I do. Um, But I think, you know, I think it's been positive. I think it's definitely shed light to what disability truly is, to what it can be. But it's also created a lot of support to the community and to people who didn't think they have support. I constantly have a lot of parents reaching out to me, you know, asking to put calls with me, to schedule me on calls, to see how my parents dealt with a specific situation or to see how I would deal with the situation. And I think that goes to show that the world is, still needs to develop a lot of resources for specific community groups and not necessarily just capitalize on them. Because when you're making money off a community group, but there's still like a stigma, there's still a stereotype, there's still a hole somewhere, that's an issue. So I think, you know, I think the impact has been great. And it's like, it's like what you said earlier, you know, it's living with a disability despite I'm all these things, but at the same time is I'm all these things because of my disability. Because without it, there would be no creativity. There would be no kind of creation for me to venture out and create the platforms I've created. So I think it's ultimately important, you know, to just continue and keep on creating content and just, you know, see what comes up. Disability is a very, very broad journey and every day looks different. You know, there's not one day that looks the same. There's not one day that, you know, so I just think it's a matter of just taking it day by day.
1: Mm -hmm. And now you sort of hinted at some things there, but this next question, it's a big one in the sense that there are definitely loads of things to unpack with it. But how has, in your opinion, with just the way in which the world is moving, as we discussed, companies, society, like we're taking measures to make the world more inclusive, to make the world more, like just being more diverse, more inclusive, all of that but what are some ways based on your perspective and just the work you're doing on social media, the feedback you're receiving, how do you think, like, what are some ways we can still improve as a society or like, what do you hope for, I guess?
2: I think a big one is accessibility. And this is like accessibility, like accessibility, physically, accessibility, virtually. You know, um, about a year ago, I tried to embark in an NFT project. I was very, very, very excited about it. And one big complaint I got from the community is the physical world is not even accessible. So imagine the work we're gonna have to do to make the web accessible. Mm -hmm. And that kind of like shattered me as a whole because I had this project fully developed and I could never even, you know, put it on sale, anything because I knew it wasn't really gonna go with the community's values. And I think a big part of it has to be accessibility, physical and virtual, and especially now, speaking about AI, speaking about all of these new things. You know, technology is great, but technology exists for a very specific reason. And we've, we saw this when the World Wide Web came out and it basically displaces intersectionalized groups. It gives you know advantage to groups that have access to these things, mm-hmm. and it leaves groups that doesn't out, God knows where. So I think accessibility is huge. Um, on a business standpoint, I think we really have to drill down into what it really needs to be diverse and inclusive, and not just do it because, you know, it's, it's cute and it's gonna make us look good. I think if you don't have If you're putting a disabled model, if a company is putting a disabled model on an ad, on a marketing campaign, I expect your building to be accessible. I expect human resources to have adaptive technology if you have any disabled employees. I expect human resources to have supplied equitable pay to this disabled employee. Um, You know, there's, like I said, disability is a domino effect. And so is diversity. And I think we're past the cute marketing app, you know, I think we're past the disabled model or the black model, the Asian model down the runway. Now we need the follow through. We need the follow through. And I think, and I think that's something that millennials, Gen Z and the next gen off are really good. We're really good at. We call people out. We don't care. Mm -hmm. I don't care if I use your brand before. You mess up once, I'm going to call you out. You do something that goes against what you're preaching, I'm going to call you out. And I think that's what makes it so, so, so different. We're Mm non-conformance, you know, and then we live in this society that has been so volatile for such a long time, from the economy to immigration to just so many things that it's like, what's the more, you know, what more wars can we go through? We've kind of already, we kind of already went through COVID. We're going through a recession. Like,
1: mm-hmm.
2: what can be worse? You know? So I think it's really like making sure that you're calling these brands out, especially like how the vegan community is, how the cruelty-free community is, that they call brands out. They do not care. You know, I think it's the same thing with us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's so much of it is the follow through like you said. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's great when companies make strides, right? But I think a lot of the times it's surface level strides that are being made. Yeah. And there's yeah. no consistency and not a lot of follow through. And then, you know, just time goes by and the cycle keeps repeating if mm-hmm. if there isn't that follow through. So, um yeah. yeah, I I can only hope that you know, times continue to change, but I think it's individuals like you, you know, the way you're using your voice. And I think it's, I I love the stories you share on your platform too. And I'm going to be like linking every, every, all your handles up so that people can go follow. Cause like the the things you you share is so great. Like I loved, I watched your banana bread story. (laughs) (laughs) would you mind just sharing like if you wouldn't mind just giving like a brief overview of that because I think this is like why your page is so great and the things you share and the conversations you start up
2: for sure so that day I went to Brooklyn and I I hate going to Brooklyn because I don't hate Brooklyn itself I love Brooklyn but I hate going to Brooklyn because I have to take like three buses or like three metros and then it's like going down one step you know to take me all the way down to financial district to then cross to get over to Brooklyn to get up to another train to get to where I need to be in Brooklyn because Brooklyn is a lot bigger and it's a lot more wider so the lines in the metro system is different and I met up with a friend for brunch because we were discussing um some projects and I remember I'm like, okay, I'm ready, you know, to head out, whatever. And then my friends like, take the, take the banana bread. I'm like, I'm not going to take the banana bread cake because it's, it's not, it's, it's not going to get home like safely. Like it's not going to get home safely. She was like, take the banana bread cake. I'm not going to take it. I was like, okay. So halfway in, when we were done um, having the meeting, I was walking down. I kind of mapped the closest metro and it was like three blocks down three avenues down it didn't seem as far of a walk until i started walking and the avenues in brooklyn are a bit longer than the are in head mm-hmm. so i'm like okay pacing myself i was like you got this you know don't worry girl you know it's, it's a hot disabled girl summer you can do it and then i'm peeking into the bag and this banana bread cake it's like slanted it's sweating It's already like all gooey, all like, oh, I was like, oh my God. And then when I finally make it to the Metro, I kind of peek again at the bag. I'm like, God, Lord, and now I have to take you down like all these stairs. And then I really started thinking, I'm like, it's crazy how there's been this myth that we're lazy, that we don't want to work, that, you know, that disabled people you know, take advantage of the system and that we live off benefits. first so, off like, benefits don't even, like, like, we get, like, $1,200 a month. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's worth, like, groceries for, like, a family of, like, five. Or, like, that's worth, like, a car payment. Nowadays, just one car. And I was, like, you know, at that point, going down the stuff of my banana bread cake, I was just thinking about the unemployment rate. Because I think one of the biggest policies when presidents have is to get people back out to work. It's to stimulate the economy with new jobs, you know, with new opportunities, with new technologies, where people kind of come, you know, have spending power because people don't work, people don't have spending power. But then you have one of the biggest minorities marginalized at home because there's no accessibility. Because if I have to go through this hurdle every day to work, I'm not going to work what is this? Like, this is not like, this is not fair. This is not equal. So I kept thinking about that. And I was like, it's crazy how like governments and like societies have created these myths to go like against what's really going on, that they're creating themselves. And I was just like, this is just beyond me. So I got home and when I saw the banana bread cake, I was like, I have to to speak about this because it's like, disability is such a domino effect like you kind of like you're one-off and it creates a whole system of what's really happening and what's really going on
1: mm-hmm. yeah I mean public transportation is ha- was not you know mapped properly for individuals with like mobility well, hindrances and it's 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 wild and it's so funny because I was just last night I was chatting with a friend of mine who lives in Brooklyn and she was telling me the, how excited she was because one of you know, a, a mutual friend of ours was also moving to Brooklyn. And she's like, finally, like a friend in Brooklyn, like I don't have to yeah. travel so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's, it's tough. And like, even like I'm over in the UK right now in London and oh. it's like the tube. Oh my gosh. I thought the stairs like on, on the subway were crazy. Like they'll, they'll mark yeah. them. They'll tell you how many steps it's like 184 steps on this lot. And It's like, how do people do it if there's no elevator? Like, how are people doing this? And um, I think it's just stuff like that, that some people may not realize on a day-to-day basis, the fact that you're so open and willing to share just Mm -hmm. stories while they have a sim like a silly kind of beginning with like something, with yeah, piano cred, yeah. but it's relatable. And <laughs> I-, I think it makes it like all that much more impactful for people to hear and come across and pay attention to it. So um, yeah, definitely keep, you know, doing your thing and keep sharing, uh, you know, your story and your voice. And I think you're definitely making a difference for people. Like I said, I mean, I came across your story and was instantly moved. And I just thought like, why, are like, yeah. more like, why am I not seeing more content creators out there? Cause mm. I know that there's disabled content creators out there. Mm. Like, why are they not mainstream? Um, mm. And the mm. fact that, you know, your page caught my eye, I think it's just so amazing what you're doing and just to continue to do it. Um, but I know I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> you-
2: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. No, I mean, I, you know, one of my biggest fights, it's like, you know, we have to turn disability mainstream because if we kind of keep preaching to the choir of like disabled activists and disabled creators and disabled you know business owners like we're not going to get anywhere like this is never going to be anything Mm -hmm. so my fight is always like getting out there and speaking to people who don't have disabilities and I always say like not everything has to be transactional I have a lot of friends that ask me like how do you get into the social groups that you get into and how do you like have the friends that you have and I'm like, well, first of all, my PR career paid for one thing. And it was for, like, you know, getting into, like, these high societal groups. But another part is it's, like, not everything has to be a ticket or, like, a check. Like, you really have to become friends with people to have them care about you your issues and then, of course, to advocate with you. Because if you're just looking for a check, if you're just looking to get paid, or you're just kind of looking to have transactional relationships, those don't last. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, swinging that into some advice, um, because I always like to end each episode asking, you know, with this being handling it, has there been a piece of advice throughout your life that's really helped you try to handle it? I think like back in the day
2: when I was younger, I was always constantly asking myself, am I going to be okay later on? You know, am I going to be good? Am I going to feel stable? Am I going to be Am I going to feel happy with my disability and like looking into it like i'm so okay like i am so okay so i think it's just like having hope and having faith basically means believing positively in the in the unknown and you know when we look at faith and when we look at hope like we don't necessarily know if we can turn that into a reality but we believe that it can be and slowly but surely we work to it until it becomes true So I think like if you have something that's kind of like, you know, tumbling your mind right now and like negative situation, like just kind of try to stick to it, you know, for as long as you can. Don't stay in places or things with people that, you know, deteriorate your self worth or make you wonder and make you ask yourself who you really are, what your value is. But I think in the situations that you know that you can control, just have faith in them
1: and have hope. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. um I think that is so important um and like you said, it it doesn't matter what situation you're in those things they just it, it's sort of like having your North Star to get you through it mm-hmm. um but then the the harder you work at it and the stronger your belief is in that hope mm-hmm. in that faith um it it does. it helps make it more of a reality makes things more more achievable um but yeah. yeah. Paula, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing your story. Like I said, you're just, you're doing such wonderful things and I can't wait to see what all you continue to do. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun and thank you for mainstreaming the conversation. It means a lot to the community.
0: Alright, everybody? I hope you found today's conversation with Paola enlightening because I personally did. I was so inspired when I came across her story and being able to chat with her and learn more about how she decided to pivot her career. I've become such a fan of hers and I cannot wait to see what all she continues to do with her platform. If you'd like to follow along, her details are all listed in the episode description. Thank you to Paula so much for coming on and thank you listeners so much for tuning in. As always, let me know what you thought of our episode. You can reach us on Instagram at Podcast, and feel free to send us a message and let us hear your thoughts and suggestions. Now listen, I will see you this Friday, this Friday with a brand new episode because we are releasing two episodes this week. But until then, keep staying safe with everything going on in the world right now and keep handling it. I'll talk to you soon.